Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 301. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 301 you're listening to. My guest today is Ryan Freeland. Ryan is a producer, songwriter, engineer, and mixer based in Los Angeles. He's also a five-time Grammy Award winner, and he's best known for his work with Bonnie Raitt, Ray LaMontagne, Amy Mann, Grant Lee Phillips, one of my favorites, Rodney Crowell, as well as Loudon Wainwright III. He talks to us from his Stampede Origin Studio located in Culver City, California, and we have a fantastic conversation, and I'm really looking forward to having him on. Ryan Freeland coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about perspective. More importantly, change in perspective, seeing it from a different angle. And that could mean, of course, you know, anything we're talking about in life. And of course, as it relates to uh, the start of this conversation, uh, the perspective I'm seeing differently is my mix and mastering room here at home. I know that you all have experienced this where you get into uh, a way of doing things now, that could be the setup of a room and that's what i'm talking about in this particular case you set the room up you get comfortable with it and then you're you're kind of superstitious to change when things have worked out but then you really start to think about hmm what if i move this rack over here and how much more room would i open up if i did that oh but then that's going to lead to all this cable changeover hmm and then you start to get stuck well I've been sitting on this idea of changing my studio around for some time, and the minutia really gets you kind of locked into inaction. I kept thinking to myself, what is it that I can do to like, to get this moving forward? And I thought, do I need to buy something different to cause me to act, or do I need to just physically move something and see how it feels? And that's how it started. I pushed a rack over to one end of the room, saw how it looked and saw the room that it opened up in here and immediately thought, this is it. This is how it's gotta be. It starts with moving a little piece of your puzzle and then figuring out what remains. If I move this piece, what's the next step? What's the next small thing that I can do to change the situation? And it could be like that for anything. It could be like that for a mix. Uh, Maybe you have been sitting on the same mix for a while and it's just not working for you, but you're afraid to change because you've worked so hard to get that mix where it is. Well, you know, in these days we can do a save as and go crazy, right? But some of us know that, but we're just mentally stuck. And this can be the case in life too. You're set in your ways. You don't know how to make the next move. So it just takes making one small move, seeing how that feels, and then taking the next move. Because you know what? You can always move stuff back. Now, maybe not everything in life, obviously. Some things in life are like toothpaste. Once you squeeze it out of the tube, there's no going back. But I think you get where I'm going here. It's just the concept of you've set a precedent in your life with anything we're talking about here. And you're sometimes you're afraid to make a move there's a mental block because of one element. So 
Maybe either move that element or look to another element. Move it, change it, alter it, and then sit back and see how it feels. Once you start to feel comfortable, then you could start moving the next piece. Maybe you don't even feel entirely comfortable. Maybe you're thinking, hmm, I like that, but I'm not totally sure. So the only way to be sure is to just maybe keep moving it. You don't always need to seek the approval of others either to make it happen. Sometimes we just gotta act and do what we need to do. Sometimes it takes seeing it from a different angle too. In my case, back to the studio, it may take even sitting in a different spot to look around and think, hmm, this could look this way if I move this over here kind of a thing. It's easy to imagine. I think in our DNA, a lot of us who do audio are imaginative thinkers. We can think about it we can conceptualize it, but to actually make the physical move is really difficult for a lot of us. To actually take that first step because we think, oh, things are working the way they are. Just because I think this could be slightly better, I don't know if I want to do that. And we get scared. I could talk this to the ends of the earth and I don't want to do that because I think you all get the basic concept. So my advice is, if you're suffering inaction, if you can see it in your mind, but you're suffering the inaction, make the first step, make the first move, move the piece of furniture, move the fader, make the change in your life that you need to change, sit back, see how it feels, and then start moving each consecutive piece bit by bit. It's like I tell my kids with their homework, take the first problem, break it down into a series of small steps and tackle each one, and eventually you'll be done with the assignment. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable, you might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. 
As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Ryan Freeland here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate the invite. Yeah, I've been I've been thinking about you for quite some time. Obviously, I've checked out the work you've done, but we have some mutual friends and I keep hearing, oh, you got to have Ryan on, you got to have Ryan on. So finally, our mutual friend, Michael Cuddy, hit me up the other day and he said, hey man, what about Ryan? I said, yeah, you know, Dave and, and Kim Rosen have been talking about him coming on. So yeah, let's reach out to him. Let's put this together. So I'm happy you're here. I'm glad to be here. Those are all very kind people to push my name forward. Like that. I appreciate it. <laughs> Well, so currently, as we conduct this interview in 2020, what do you consider yourself? You mean as a human or professional? <laughs> <laughs> as, a, as a professional, producer, engineer, mixer, what, with all the slashes between titles, what do you think of yourself as today? Well, I guess I, I stick with engineer, which I think encompasses both recording and mixing. Mm. There hasn't been any recording going on yeah. this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got, I actually, oddly enough, I, I snuck it. We did a Jerry Lee Lewis recording. We recorded Jerry Lee Lewis in Nashville in January. So I got to do that, which was great. And then from then it's just been mixing. So, but I, I think of myself as a engineer in the broad sense of it, not just like specializing in just one or the other, but I think of it all as kind of one version of, I guess, a skill set. I would say, mm -hmm. or a passion, you know, that's like, I'm interested in all aspects of recorded sound from the microphone to the mix down and through the master. I don't, I don't master much. That's what Kim's for. <laughs> But that's how I think of myself as an engineer, music, sound, audio engineer. And you work out of, if I'm correct, the place you're talking to me now is your home studio. Was that a former garage that you had completely redone? If I had been smart, I would have done that. Uh -huh. What I did was I tore down the garage and I built a two-story complex with overhangs so that it's the bottom floor is the size of a garage to code. And then, but the top floor has got a, an eight foot overhang on the front and a six foot overhang on the back and a three or four foot overhang on the side. So it's quite a bit bigger than a garage space, the actual like upper, upper deck, which has been great. But at the time I was like, I, I had been so used to recording full bands and mi then mixing them and all this stuff, all this work that Joe Henry and I have done over the years was all done like that. When I moved to my new house here in Culver City, I didn't want to give any of that up. I wanted to have all that. And that's one of the funny things I've been thinking about during this year where it's like, I've gone over like, and I've seen other people's studios and stuff that are in garages and they seem really great. I'm like, man, I could have saved so much money just building a garage. Why did I have to do this <laughs> huge two-story thing? I was so adamant about that I needed more space than a garage. And now I'm like, wow, I could do this all in a garage. Well, you could tear this one down. Yeah, right. And build a really nice garage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Save myself a lot of 
Actually, it seems like twice as much work, actually. But yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's, I, I, I'm up high. I got lots of windows. I can see the sunset. And by no means I'm complaining. It's be- It's a beautiful place to work. And, and my clients, when there used to be things like clients coming over to hang out with you, they, they've always loved working here. So it's kind of a dream studio. It's been great to have. Oh, I've seen the pictures on your website just are amazing. I think, wow. I would love a big space like that. Yeah, it's great. Guess who took those pictures? I'm going to guess Kim Rosen. Dave Rosen. Dave Rosen. Okay. (laughs) And and built that website for me. So let's come back to the studio in a bit, but let's go back to the beginning. When did audio become important in your life as a potential profession? Well, it's very hard for me to remember a time that I didn't love sound. I started piano at the age of six and played mostly by ear. I wasn't like a sight reader. It was just me listening to records and playing. And I took lessons, classical piano lessons, and I would watch the piano teacher play. So it was visual and ear for me more than anything technical with reading music. Although I, I can read charts and top melodies for vocal accompaniment stuff. So that started at six. And then I remember distinctly, like all I used to listen to was classical music. And then my parents' record collection, which had a lot of great stuff, a lot of great folk stuff and the Beatles and stuff like that. And then I got, because of the classical music, when I started getting into other recordings, I got into prog rock because that married the the musicality with really cool records. Mm -hmm. And that really, well, it still really floats my boat, that stuff. So that all was kind of all from six till 10 or 11. And I built my first studio at 12. And I got a four track and I just used all my lawnmower money to buy microphones and mic stands. And before I got the four track, I had found, my dad had these two reel to reel tape machines in the basement. And I used to experiment overdubbing by recording on one and bouncing it while performing. And and by the time you get to three or four bounces like that, it just sounds pretty unusable. But I I love the idea of being able to multi-track record. I didn't know what it was. I just saw these two tape machines and I don't know why he had two of them, but there were two of them and you could bounce between them and overdub on top of yourself. So the four track was mind blowing. I always wonder about that with kids today with, you know, like the starting thing is like what a 16 channel garage band system comes free with every phone or something. You're like, like, I'm like, my mind was blown by like a four track. I wonder what people that just have garage band on their iPhones, if it's even that interesting at all to just sit there and be able to overdub and, and build tracks and harmonize with yourself. I see it on all these Zoom things. People, they're building stuff with video. They're overdubbing and harmonizing. And that just was so obviously not happening when I was a kid. Yeah. It's kind of unusual though, 12, to get in that early. I guess so. Yeah. I just didn't think of it any other way. It was the thing that interested me the most in the world. Hmm. It was like, there was something about it. There was something about the sound of records. There was something about thinking about how they made records. There was something about thinking about capturing sound and where you put microphones and how you did that change the sound. And that stuff just really captured my imagination as a kid. And back in when there was vinyl and a lot of the records I liked, they would have photos of the studio process inside of the vinyl record. And that looked amazing to me. I was like, those places look like a great place to be and what a creative artistic space to be in this world. So that's all I kind of thought of from then. And I I went to high school for piano and I went to college for recording and uh, you, you talk about thinking of it as a profession that I had told this story recently, but I got hired to work in Memphis. And then six months after that, I got hired by Bob Clearmountain to come work in LA to be his mix assistant. So all through that, studying it all since I was young, going to college, getting a job, ending up in LA at Bob's studio. 
And there was some big name project we were doing and I came out with some late thing and I was exhausted and I came out and I looked and everybody that was on the session was driving some amazingly fancy car. And that was the first time in all of that work and thought and effort that I was like, oh, you can make money doing this. <laughs> it had never, like the money thing had never occurred to me. I was like, in Memphis, I was starving. I was eating Taco Bell bean and cheese burritos and whatever fruit the clients didn't eat from the fruit bowl that day, I would take home with me and that was my food. So it was this, I don't know why I wasn't thinking about money, but <laughs> it just didn't occur to me that music and recording was a way that you could make a decent living, at least at, at that time you could. Where did you go to college? I went to Cal State Chico. Oh, right. That's the Michael Cuddy connection. Exactly. Yeah. When I was there in 1990, it was a fairly new program. They had had a year or two where they had just built the studio. But the year I was there was the first year they had a full-time professor just to teach audio recording. So that was the very beginnings of that program at Chico State. When you were growing up, where is it that you grew up? What town? I was born in Northern California, San Mateo. Oh. And when I got started with pianos, I was in Oakland, California. My father was an airline pilot. He transferred to Cleveland, Ohio to be able to fly better routes and stuff as a pilot. And so the first studios, when I talk about basements, there's not a lot of basements in California. So we were in just outside of Cleveland, Ohio in a small town called Hudson. I was there for 10 years Okay. before moving back to Oakland again. I want to jump ahead, and I know that there's a lot of little details there, but walk me through the situation where prior to working for Bob Clearmountain, what were you doing, how did Bob come up, and how did that gig materialize? I'm not sure how it materialized. I worked really hard in college to learn everything I could, and I believe one of the first recommendations for this job in Memphis at Kiva Studios, at the, now it's called House of Blues Studios, and I was lucky enough to be the one that got recommended for that job. At that time, you started as a runner. It was a runner position. So I went off to Memphis. I was excited. My first gig there was Jerry Lee Lewis, ironically enough. And I was there working. I would work the phones and I'd read all the manuals and I'd learn the SSL and I'd learn the Neve automation. I'd learned all the, everything I could not actually being in the room. And then to the point where when I got in the room, I was able to really get moving on it. And apparently Bob was looking for an assistant and he was asking around and my boss in Memphis, this guy, Gary Bells, who's a friend of mine, said, oh, we got this guy, Ryan, from Chico State. You should call Chico State because he was working out really well. And so I heard it through the grapevine that Bob was looking for somebody. Mm. Some friends of mine had talked to him. So I knew, I knew that he was looking for somebody. And I don't know what possessed me, but I was like, well, I, I want that gig. <laughs> I don't really remember how I got the number or what, but I got his number and I called and he knew who I was because I was the guy that was the reason he was calling these other things. So I was like, hey, look, I want the job. My family's in California and I'd rather be in California than Memphis. And if there's any way that you would consider me, I'd love to do it. And I didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks. So he hardly asked me anything. He was like, would you be okay feeding the cats every once in a while? I don't want to insult you, but like, I need help. We got these cats that need to be fed. I was like, yeah, sure. Yeah. I didn't hear anything for two weeks. And I was like, oh, I didn't get the job, but I got to hear I didn't get the job. So I called back and I talked to his wife, Betty, and she was like, oh yeah, uh, when are you going to be here? We start Springsteen in a week, you know, in two weeks, we need you here. 
I said, okay, I guess it's really bizarre to think about now, but it was kind of that random and that weird. And so I told Gary that I had to take this other gig. I packed my car. I drove to my folks in Oakland. And when I got back to Oakland, they're like, well, where's the job? I'm like, I don't know. It's in LA somewhere. Well, how much is he paying? He's like, I don't know. We didn't talk about money. The things you do when you're in your 20s. Right. So I got down there. I found a friend to stay with in LA and called Bob the day before he said I was supposed to be there. And I was like, hey, what's the address for the studio? gave me the address and I showed up and that was it. I was there for three years and he paid me enough to pay my bills and I got to actually go to grocery stores and buy food. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> a step of, up from the uh, yeah. leftover fruit. Yeah. And I eventually made enough. I could actually get my own apartment and yeah, it was, it was good. That has to have been one of the more monumental experiences you've had. Yeah, there's a lot of hard things in audio, like the hours. And there were times in Memphis where friends of mine were like, what are you doing, man? You're killing yourself. You should quit that job. I'd be like, nope, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to do what they're asking me to do. If I got to go up there and clean the attic and do all this stuff that you got to go through. And like that thing, the leap of faith with Bob, it's like there was no telling me no. (laughs) I just was so single-mindedly like, I want to make records. I love sound this is who I am. None of the rest of it mattered. The things that people would say like, oh, this or that, or what, what, what's the healthcare plan? You know, what's the, <laughs> and you meet a lot of musicians that are like that too. Musicians that are, they don't care. They'll live in, they'll live in a cot in the woods if that means they get to like do music for a little, like there's, there's something about music and this feeling you get that inspires you to want to do it regardless of any of the other things that might get in your way or other regular things in life that people worry about. I just didn't have any of those things. I was like, I don't care about the rest of it. I just want to make records. Yeah. I mean, what an opportunity. I would have done the exact same thing. I mean, if you're a young person who knows who Bob Clearmountain is and you love making records, I mean, when it comes to mixing, who better to go to? Yeah. Life-changing. And the fact that he was so supportive. I mean, one of the first things he said to me was, I want this to be the best studio it can be. So whatever you think of to make this the best studio, do it. And that was for me was great. I'd be like, oh, if I ran cabling or if I did an extra digital line feed through the floor here and into the thing, I could do copies more quickly because I could get a direct feed. You know, there were all those sorts of things. Mm. Any little thing I thought of, any little nerdy thing, some little piece of gear you could get that would help make the studio run faster. He was happy to have me do it. So that was really, really exciting for me as a young person. There's no doubt in my mind that you learned a ton of mixing tricks and audio related things. What did he teach you about the business of being an audio engineer and interacting with clients? The main thing is, because people, this does come up a lot in mixing, where people talk about how many mix revisions do I get? And sometimes you do have to implement those things. But the thing that with Bob, it was always like, you're paying for the mix. I'll mix until you're happy. It wasn't about any of that other crap. So if if you're not happy with it, I'll keep working at it. That was a pretty valuable lesson because there are times where you feel kind of beat up and you're like, man, this is getting rough and there's not enough money here to justify the amount of time I'm spending on this. And I always think back to that, like, nope, this is what I do. I mix it until they're happy. I don't mess around and I don't get upset about all the other stuff. My job is to make this sound good, one, but sound good to the artist. He taught you that don't sweat revisions and, and putting 
barriers and parameters around mixing. Just mix it till they're happy. Yeah, I don't mean that in like, I get this question sometimes too, where people will be like, they push you and you change your mix and you do all this stuff and you send them an update and then they kind of go like, yeah, we like that, but do you still like it? And I always go, I would never send out a mix to somebody that I didn't also like. Like I killed myself to find a way to figure out what you're saying and yet still make it sound good to me as a mixer. That's always the thing. It's not about just doing what people are telling you until they're happy and you just do whatever they tell you. You still have to feel good about it. And I would never send out anything that I didn't also feel good about or that I didn't think that something could be learned from it. Like we could continue the conversation about why maybe we should push this a little bit or push that a little bit. I mean, I have some of that internally anyway, but Bob really always showed me that kind of level of professionalism where it really is a professional service field. Like your artistry is important and your skills and how you feel are important, but they don't exist in a vacuum. You have to incorporate them into the world of other people and other opinions and other ideas. You can't just be non-bending in your opinions on how things should be. It's like there is no kick drum sound. The kick drum sound does not exist in the world. There's a million versions of a kick drum sound. So whatever you do on your first pass and somebody's like, I'm not sure I like the way that vibes. It's like, okay, well, let's try something else. You can't go like, this is the way this is supposed to sound. You know, I've had mastering engineers tell me that. I'm like, this sounds like you're trying to make it sound like some kind of record other than the record I was trying to make. And like, <laughs> hey man, look, this is the way it's supposed to be. I'm like, it's the way it's supposed to be. Like, who says this is the way it's supposed to be? You can create something that doesn't exist in any other way. It can sound different from every other record ever made. It just has to feel honest to itself. So I never like it when people use that line of defense. It's supposed to be this, or this is, I know what I'm doing, you know, just take it as it is sort of thing. What are the other key lessons learned from Bob? Like if somebody were to say, hey, what's the one thing that Bob taught you? In all kindness to Bob, he was not a instructor. He had me there to help him facilitate his job. And I didn't see him and he didn't see himself as somebody to give advice or to teach anything. And he, most of what I learned from him was from watching him and listening. And I think the listening was the most valuable part hmm. because what I would do, usually we'd start in the morning on a new song and I would come in, first one in, I get the tapes ready, transfer, get it all patched up and everything going the way I knew he liked it. So you couldn't do any EQ or any outboard. So it was all just faders. And I would always get kind of a fader mix going and I would sit there and keep messing with the blend and the balance until he came downstairs and showed up. And then I would get up and I'd take my second engineering position behind him. And then I would just watch him. I mean, I would be doing other things, but amongst the other jobs I had doing there, I would watch and listen to what he did throughout the day to the song and to my rough balance. And I did that every day for all those years I was there. And that you learn a lot. I bet. And also the conditioning of the ear, because that's like a big thing too. Like, so you hear how the sound coming through that console and those speakers, you get used to that sound and, and you become conditioned to hearing that sound. I don't know if people do enough of that, like critically listening and thinking about how things are, you know, it's like, it is the job, but I don't know if people think about it in that way as much anymore. Hmm. And that's what I did with, with Bob. I was able to just sit there and really go like, oh, he's pushing it in this direction. Oh, wait. And then you see him like go off on a thing and then he bring it back another way. And you'd see the push pull of the mix until where at the end you could go like, oh, now I see why all of those hundred or thousand decisions that I've been watching him make all came together to a really great mix. He wasn't teaching, he wasn't saying anything. He was just, it was all just having to watch him and be very, very observant and aware 
aware of what was going on around you. What led to the decision to ultimately leave that position and strike out on your own? Well, I always think about that. So I, I was there three years and the first year I felt over my head. Like I felt like, oh man, there's a lot I don't know. And I got to figure this stuff out. And I worked really hard to do that. And the second year I was like, okay, I got most of this dialed in. I'm understanding most of this. And by the third year, I was kind of like, yeah, okay. This is not that challenging anymore. I know what this job is. I'm good at it. I like it, but it's not pushing me and it's not challenging me. And at that age and at that time, I was like, I just felt too young to be there. So I was terrified, but I talked to Bob about it. I was like, look, I got to do more than this. I can't just assist anymore. I got to get my hands on more stuff. And I just feel like I want to be more involved. And so I just took the leap and he totally understood and was super supportive and kind about it. And actually, you know, my first few clients were people I met at Bob's and people that he helped me land some of those early gigs, which helped me survive the first gosh, the first 10 years. Yeah. So that was the reason was I, I wanted to do more and I wanted to learn more and I wanted to challenge more. And there was part of me that was like, I, I want to be the guy in the chair, not the guy behind the guy in the chair. Exactly. You know, it's like, it like the time it, I was still young enough to know that there was still a lot I needed to know, but I also felt ready to at least start to be the point guy or person for a lot of stuff. Is there anything that you do now that is modeled off those experiences? whether it's audio-based, business-based, lifestyle-based, anything that you held on to that you feel like you can directly say, oh yeah, I got that idea from Bob. Well, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of the stuff he did to drums and stuff that I do the same settings and I use the same gear. And he set the template for me on a lot of that stuff. Like, oh, this is how you can get a cool vibe going with these things. Little things like breaking for dinner at the same time. Like I break for dinner with my family when at Bob's we used to break and all eat together and then go back to work. So, the, you know, those sorts of things give a nice arc to the day. Whereas like in times I'm not working here, if I'm at another studio and it's that around three o'clock, everyone's starving. And then it's like somebody finally orders food and it's th that sort of unstructured stuff can screw up the flow of a creative mind sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so Bob always had a nice flow to his day. That and a lot of the sonic things he did, I hold on to. And I, I like I mix on a, it's a summing thing, but the SSL Sigma, which is, so Bob's an SSL guy. So that's got a little bit of an SSL kind of vibe to it, obviously. So he's in my, I feel like he's in there. Like He's I, in your I, DNA a little he's bit. He's in my DNA. Like, I feel like my sonic imprint is very different from his, but a lot of, the, there's a lot of foundation there that I, I feel like is connected to him. You know, that's an interesting, like, you could have stayed there and the decision that you made to up and leave, obviously that was the right decision to move forward. But did you have a plan? Did you struggle? How did you get on your feet? and find solid footing. It was not easy or straightforward. And it was kind of all over the place. One of the biggest breaks I got was Amy Mann was doing a new record, which ended up becoming Lost in Space. And she hired me. It started small. She'd have me come do a few overdubs at her house. She came to my apartment. I had a little tiny one-bedroom apartment in Westwood at the time. And we ended up doing a lot of recording there with Michael Lockwood, who produced that record. So that was a big thing. And I, I met some people that needed songwriter demos for publishing company stuff. They have small budgets at the time. I think it was like 500 bucks or something, which now <laughs> at the time it was like, I was so used to Bob Clearmount and billing numbers that I was like $500 to do a whole song. It just seemed so low. So low. Now I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like you go, you got $500. So yeah, anyway, they, I just figured it out and I, 
there was a lot of connection stuff. People know you. That's the thing with always doing your best all the time that really is a good thing because people see that. People go like, wow, that guy always did his best. It's like when things would come up, like I think Bob's wife, Betty, heard about the movie Moulin Rouge needed an audio guy to do some cue stuff. And she was like, oh, you should, you know, Ryan's so versatile and so dedicated. So she'd call him. So that ended up being like three months of really highly paid, really creative work. I mean, I played most of the piano pieces in Moulin Rouge. A lot of the piano stuff is, they just, oh, like roll a piano into that into his studio thing and have him lay down some piano takes for this scene. So that was... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's great. I haven't thought about that stuff in a while, but those things, they all kind of piece together. And all the time, I just kept reinvesting in equipment because some of the early Amy Mann stuff, it'd be like, I, I had a friend, Dave Boucher, that lived down the street and I'd be like, hey, Amy wants to do uh, drums tomorrow. And I've got these four mics and these three mic stands. Can I borrow two mics from you and three more mic stands? And he'd be like, sure. So I'd go get his three mics and his three mic stands and I'd be able to do a full drum kit or as well as I could. And after a little bit of that, I was like, I have got to be self-contained. I can't be running around town borrowing mic stands. Right. And so I would just use all the money I made after rent and food. I would just use it and get stands and mics and more pre's. And Bob gave me his old Pro Tools rig, which I believe was either eight or 16 channels at the time because he had upgraded to whatever the 24 channel version. And so he gave me his old one. So I had that and I was able to get a pair of speakers and just piece it together. So it was, it could have easily failed. It was a total leap of faith. I knew that I had to try and I didn't really have any other thoughts about what else to do. Were you intimidated at all? I mean, even after working with Bob, I'm sure that there's a little bit of trepidation. It's like, oh, Amy Mann's calling me. I got to go over to her place and do overdubs. Were you nervous? I think there's part of me that's always nervous on any session, mm -hmm. especially recording. Sometimes it's just like excitement, but sometimes it is kind of a nervousness because you never know. And if you've done it enough times, you see it go badly every once in a while. So you do get always kind of nervous, like the computer might not start up or whatever. There's a million things that could go wrong, especially when you're doing like big sessions. If you have like 32 channels going at one time, it's like there's always something going to go wrong. So I always live in a slight state of nervousness. Amy always liked what I did enough to keep asking me back. I mean, it's been 20 years now. We just finished another Amy Mann record. I don't think I've heard her say good job ever to anybody, but if she keeps using you, she obviously likes what you're doing. So that gives you confidence. And then you can kind of thwart off the ones where the people don't necessarily dig what you're doing or, or they go use somebody else or whatever. That happens and that's depressing and hard. And sometimes there's things you go, oh, like I could have done things differently. And there's other times you're like, I don't know. They just, I just wasn't the right match for that project. Mm-hmm. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. 
They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. After you left Bob's, you kind of had a bit of a leg up, it seems, that you were getting recommended. But where were the struggles? Where were the times where it slowed down and you're like, oh, crap, maybe I'm going to have to do something different? Or were there any slowdowns? My whole career, there's been slowdowns. It's always like feast or famine sort of thing. And you get on projects and then you're busy, but then the project ends, but your phone isn't ringing because everyone thinks you're busy or God, you know, I don't know what, what it is, but there's always that thing where you never quite know what the next project's going to be. And so you hope that you made enough money to kind of float your way through. And a lot of times, especially when you own a studio, those can be pretty magical times because there's times you're like, okay, now's the time to rip the studio apart and clean it all up and get it all, re you know, get the wiring fixed and get everything back together. So most of my career, the, the down times have been really useful because they've allowed me to get gear fixed and revamp things and, and reorganize things. And, and that's a valuable part of running a studio is to keep it kind of tip top. And if you're working all the time, you don't really have time to do that stuff. The, the, the one I was thinking of the most is like, this makes me sound old, but when I first went independent, there weren't really cell phones. So I got a, I got a beeper. <laughs> <laughs> Because you'd be sitting around and I'd be sitting around in my apartment and be like, the phone's not ringing. I got to go do something. They're like, but I, what if I miss a call? Your phone was how people could reach you. So I got this beeper. And I remember I was like, okay, I've got the beeper. Nobody's calling today. I'm going to go to the beach. So I go to Manhattan Beach or El Matador Beach. And I'm up there and the beeper goes off. And you're like, oh, man, I'm at a beach. There's my no beeper's phone. going on. There's no phones at the beach. <laughs> So I had a few of those. It's a relaxing day where you're like, then you get, you like run back to your car and you drive to some place and you find a thing and then you call the person back and they're like, oh, can you get down here? I'm like, yeah, okay. That was pretty stressful and crazy times. Now with the cell phone, you're on a little too available. I had a beeper. And the only problem with that was is one of my older brothers would call the beeper and leave 8675309 as the yeah, number. Yeah, cute. So, cute. You know, the younger listeners are like, what, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Google Tommy Two-Tone. So the slowdowns would happen where you, you were surviving. How are you making it work? How are you piecing it together? I don't know. There were some years where I spent more than I made on gear and stuff, and I would just live off savings, you know, which was not, I didn't have a lot of savings, but I was able to pay my rent at least. And I don't really know how I did it. I don't know how I do it now, to be honest. There's, there's months to go. I'm like, I don't know how the heck I, I don't know how we're still here. And then the phone rings and you get some big project and you, you make good money again. But yeah, I don't really know. I don't, I don't have a great sense of it. I mean, if it gets really bad, you're going to have to do something. You know, you're going to have to like sell off gear or downsize or do something. You got to, people need to survive, obviously, especially when you have kids. You can't just suddenly not 
make money. That was the other side of the engineering lifestyle I hadn't really thought of because once I like had some level of success and I had the studio and I had all this gear and like things were going good. And then when things slowed down a little bit, there were times I was like, man, I'm not sure this is a job for an adult person. <laughs> like this was something I thought of as a kid and I worked really hard at it all through my 20s and 30s. <laughs> but here I am now and like, I'm not sure it's that great of a job for an adult person with children and health costs, healthcare and all that. But every every month it seems to work out. So I don't know. How do you determine, especially nowadays with the world is in flux, the record industry is always in some state of movement, it seems. Budgets are lower. How do you determine what you charge now? Do you just accept what people's budgets are or do you have a threshold to say, you've got to meet this level. You have to be this tall to ride this ride. Yeah, that's not my forte, that stuff, because I'm not a commercial studio. I, there was an interview with Yoli Mara of Mara Net Welcome to 1979 in Nashville, where she was saying you got to stick to your rates because once you start cutting rates, word gets around and whatever your cut rate is is now your new rate. And I heard that, I was like, damn, if that isn't true. Hmm. But for me, a lot of it, people have been coming more with all-in budgets. They're like, this is the budget. And I usually try and break it down on a per song basis. Because mm -hmm. if they're like, it's a 14 song album and that amount of money equals this much per song, does that sound like a professional rate to you? You know, like I try and piece it that way. It's like, if you could just come up to some decent per song thing, that would be great. So that happens a lot. I don't know. It seems more and more like people are like, this is what we have. And you're like, oh, well, I don't know if I can do it for that. It's like, okay, well, my, my friend says he can do it for that. So you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, that was a fun negotiation. <laughs> like, <laughs> Does your friend have the number of Grammys that I have? Yeah, like, yeah, well, no, but he's got some really good gear and he really, he's really, really willing to do it. He really knows Pro Tools. <laughs> I've had some people were like, we kind of dig what you're doing, but we really wanted to sound more like this. And you listen and it's like some hyper compressed, limited thing and I'm like I don't what are you kids listening to like I know it's plugins are great you know you can put 27 compressors on a lead vocal congratulations you're part of the new era but <laughs> it's like it's a little heavy on the compression I have to tell you as a listener or as somebody being asked if I can imitate that sound because there's something about it that you really like sometimes it's challenging and fun to, and you kind of can work with people and try and get them to understand why you want to do things other ways but sometimes you just feel like it's like wow the artistry of engineering has been taken over by the amateurs and that's a depressing thought to me because i always thought of it as a professional job right anybody can cook a meal but if you want a michelin star meal you got to go to the people that know how to do that you can't just think that you can just whip it up in your home kitchen but that's kind of where audio engineering has gotten to. And I think it's because of the degradation of playback systems with Amazon Echoes and AirPods and stuff. Although AirPods, the son sonic imprint of those don't bother me that much, but it's mostly like laptop speakers. Most things sound, you know, even not great mixes can sound passable on laptop speakers. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I had, I sent out a mix to somebody who's a longtime client of mine and he got back to me a little too quick. <laughs> right. And I was like, oh, no. And his comments were like, yeah, I just don't think that the bass is loud enough. And I was like, wow, what? And I finally, I called him up. I said, you know what? I don't know if I'm the right person to mix this because I mixed this in the best way I think I know how. Right. 
what did you listen to it on? He goes, well, I did listen to it on my laptop and I did listen to it on my very small, this speaker or that speaker. And I'm just like, oh, okay, let's start. Let's just start over here. Yeah. Can you just go listen for a week on other things yeah. that produce low end? And then, you know, oh, I got in my car. It sounds great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I always take that as a warning sign too when people are like, as soon as you send it, they're like, oh, we're going to listen right. We'll get notes to you, right? You know, I'm like, well, no, 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 no need for notes now. Get sleep on it. If you're going to listen to it tonight, listen to it again tomorrow. <laughs> I don't need notes after your first impression because it's always this, all this stuff. You're like, oh my God, I, I worked for eight hours on this. Could you listen to it at least twice before you before you pass this much judgment on it? Oh, that's that's so true. <laughs> I worked on it all these hours and you are turning over notes in 20 minutes? In 20 minutes, yeah. And that's the other thing with the remote thing too that's a drag because there's tough where if they were behind you in the room with you, listening to your process over six to eight hours, it happens usually where you get to the end of a six, eight hour mix. People have heard you working on it and then they like it. Like, oh yeah. I heard it go from where you started to where you finished. And I've been sitting with you for the whole process, especially if they're like late at night, who knows what kind of mindset people are in and they listen in a bad mood or on a, on a lousy system. And so then you're chasing this weird thing, which is you shouldn't have to be chasing. Audio is tricky because it translates differently on all sorts of different systems. And it's the mixer's job to find the best kind of middle ground of all those things to where it translates properly on a large variety of systems. So it might be missing a couple things on that particular system you're listening on, but if you make it sound good on that system, it's going to sound like crap in a car, for instance. So mm -hmm. like I have to judge by all these systems. I can't just make it sound good on your whatever you have at home. Like I have to consider other things. Yeah. It's a tricky business. And especially now, but like you say, if people are there, they see the time investment that they shifts the mindset a bit. I want to ask you some broad questions about gear. What's important in the gear that you use? I have a big thing about gear that just works, that it's hard to make sound bad. There's some gear that has so many variables to it. There's even plugins like this. You put the plugin on it and it just sounds terrible. And then you adjust it and you can make it sound good. But I always wonder like, why have a setting? <laughs> I mean, maybe my bad is somebody else's good, obviously, but I don't like gear where you have to fiddle with it a lot to get it to do the thing that you're trying to get it to do. I want it to just work without too much effort from my end. It's like you just, you pick a thing, you're like, okay, I know that mic and I know that pre and I know that compressor. And if I set it and it's like, okay, well, that sounds pretty good. And then you can figure out everything from there. So that's the thing I, I like the most in gears. If there's not ways to use it that sound bad, that would be helpful. <laughs> if it's if it's suck proof? Suck proof would be one way to say it, yeah. And not too fiddly. Like there's a lot of gear that, that looks kind of funny or that the knobs are fiddly or if they have concentric knobs, because I do a lot of, or I used to back when we recorded live in studios last year, where you gotta, you gotta move quick. The take is going, like you gotta grab the attack on the compressor, you gotta grab the attack knob quickly. And if it's a little thing and it's in this thing and it's weirdly labeled and you can't get to it, that stuff drives me crazy. Especially if it's analog gear, you need to be able to quickly adjust it. I wonder about that with plugins all the time. Like there's people that track with plugins. I'm like, if you've got 36 microphones feeding 36 digital pre's 
inside a DAW, like how do you get to them in time to make sure take one is usable? Mm. That was always my job when all the stuff that I've done is like, you st- take one still has to be usable. So you have to take all your years of experience with all the gear and you got to get it set in a way that is your best guess so that when take one goes down, it's not a disaster. So gear that makes it a disaster is a bad thing. So something that has a good, quick, easy to understand user interface where you just grab the knob, go, you know what it does, end of story. Yeah. And I understand that there's a lot of things that require some explanation on gear that you actually have to have read the manual a bit and you have to know they're not super intuitive. And once you kind of get that, so I'm not against fiddly bits that actually give you some variations, but it just has to be easy to adjust. It can't be fiddly to adjust for me. And it can't be ugly. I don't, I, I, <laughs> Joe Henry and I always had this conversation too, where it's like the look of a piece of gear obviously doesn't affect how it sounds. And sound is obviously the most important thing, but the look of a piece of gear or a microphone or any of it does tell you something about the person who designed that piece of gear, that they chose it to look that way and they chose the interfacing in that way. And so that does give you information about the mindset of the person that designed it and can be useful. And if it's a weird aesthetic, just visually, it's like maybe the the sonics of it follow that aesthetic. I'm not going to name any names, but there's some gear out there that I just look at and go, I can't use that. Sorry. The color scheme's not working for me. I am refraining from naming names as well, but you know who you are. You know who you are and we're keeping record. What makes you decide to buy a piece of gear? This is something that kind of been an interesting part of the process the last few years is when when you don't have gear or you don't know certain things and you're educating yourself and you're learning about it, there's always this idea that that one extra thing is going to make all the difference. You know, like, oh, I'm not sure the mix sounds so great, but if, oh, if I had this box and put that on it, or if I went to tape is always the big one of that. It's like, if it went to tape, (laughs) oh, we recorded this to tape, you're like, man, there are some horrible sounding records that were recorded to tape. Tape is not going to save you. I've gotten past that over the years. Like I kept adding more stuff, more and more stuff, thinking like, it's just going to keep making it better and better and better. And then I reached this plateau where I'd be like, oh, that's a really cool piece of gear. That sounds like it'd be really cool to use. And I'd get it and I'd demo it and I'd A, B, and I'd be like, it's just making things a little different. It's not making the mix better. Like it's just different. And I finally had to decide that adding more gear to my chain wasn't going to make my mixes better. I just had to accept that as the truth. And that's been kind of liberating because you're able to kind of go like, okay, well, let me work on the other parts of mixing and recording that aren't necessarily gear related to make things really good. I always fight for that one, that little last half percent of better. That's like where you live and breathe and die is just trying to fight for that top little bit of improvement. So anything that helps you get there is good, but gear isn't always the answer. Do you have to exercise restraint when it comes to buying gear? Do you have a lust for it that is a problem? Yeah, I think it's in the, in the DNA of an engineer, or I should say it should be in the DNA of an engineer. Like I've engineered for some producers that were also engineers and talking to them about engineering stuff. And I was like, wow, this guy is not really a gearhead. And you go like, that's kind of weird. How can you be an engineer and not be a gearhead? Like, I thought that was just a big part of the gig. That's the other thing about the modern world. Like, you can lust a little bit over plugins, but it's not really the same thing. 
And even just, we were talking about aesthetics and visual, even just the visual of an image of somebody sitting there on a laptop with headphones, it's just, it's not an inspiring thing. And I hate to like think of it that way, but it's like, I don't know if I would have wanted to get into this profession if it was just like sitting in a spare bedroom with headphones on a laptop and a two channel interface. There's not a lot inspiring about that to me to think about that. I'm like, uh. I want to do something kind of cooler than that. <laughs> so the the gear definitely feeds that and and it feeds the history of recording which I also love. You know, like microphones and the history of the microphone or like the history of the gear and what eras used certain types of techniques and things and and so much of that is gear related, like the types of of recording devices and the types of microphones and the types of equalizers and the types of compressors. It all connects engineering in the modern time to engineering as a concept and an art form to me. So if you take away the gear, I feel like you're not as in tune to the history of it. Because mm-hmm. there are some, I mean, there are like vintage plugins, like some of the first Pro Tools plugins, you still use them and you're still like, yep, this still does a cool thing. It just doesn't have the same uh, romance to it. Yeah, I think... I don't know. Over time, I went the opposite direction, and I'm, I think I'm striving for some kind of audio minimalism in the future. So with the exception of the Whitestone Audio Box, which you and I were talking about before we started the, the interview. Yeah, amazing box. That's really my only piece of outboard, and therefore, I have a goal of shrinking. I have the same goal, but it's just it's difficult for me, and especially nowadays because the Sonics are there. There's, you can't really make a sonic argument anymore. <laughs> but you could make a workflow argument. You could make a workflow argument. But I've done stuff like all in the box with all this stuff. And I'm like, I've got no complaints sonically. The only complaint I ha- would have is like that sometimes you'd be like, it's 99.5% there. And then you go like, why am I giving up a half a percentage point just to save myself having to carry gear around with me? And there's an argument to be made to do that. It's that's just right. That, that's a painful thing for me to give up on. If I'm, and I don't, I don't want to go down a gear rabbit hole with you necessarily, but your workflow, if I'm correct, is centered around an SSL box that's a summing box, but it also allows for analog inserts, if I'm correct. Well, it does. The main thing that it does that is the most magical part of it is it does the automation in the analog world, mm. which is to me, like the biggest thing about it. So you're writing the fader rides in Pro Tools, but the SSL Sigma is translating those into VCA information that it's feeding the input. So the beauty of it is that you have 32 inputs coming off your converter, but the level of the inputs feeding the box are stagnant. Mm -hmm. The control of the levels is done inside of the box. So this would happen all the time on other summing boxes or even in the box it happens. You get to like this thing and then somebody wants to keep pushing something and next thing you know, you're driving stuff way too hard and you got to back everything down. And the SSL really helps with that because if somebody just wants an extra push on a few things, you can push it and the push is happening in the analog world and the two bus converter on the way back in keeps it all cool. It's not the same. It would always happen, you're just, you end up distorting the output of your D to A converters because you're trying to push too much stuff through them. And so the Sigma box really helps with that. So no matter how hard you push it, all you're doing is pushing analog fader levels. And so that workflow, if I'm correct, I mean, you have pretty large amount of outboard gear, Yeah. assuming you still have all that. So that you've built a, a system around that workflow, which there's an argument for that to do that. Obviously, this is working for you and it's it's proven successful for you. 
Well, the the summing, I did a little bit where I just used the two bus stuff. I had maybe four pieces of rack gear I'd put on the two bus. And then I, I tried an experiment where I didn't do the summing and I just did the two bus processing. And that was kind of cool. And then I realized that the summing is really where, at least the way the Sigma does the summing is where the, the magic sits for me. And I've been able to pare down the other two bus stuff down to two or three essential things. And the rest can be made up with plugins on the input side of Pro Tools. So that's my way of kind of getting things a little smaller and less. I mean, that is the, that is the thing with gear. Gear can be like a, there are times that it has felt like a huge weight around my neck. Mm-hmm. Where you're like, you're locked into this kind of older way of thinking about it. You're trying to get into the smaller stuff, but you're fighting it because you don't really want to be just working on a laptop. But then there's also part of you that when when you have all this gear, it becomes restrictive. You're like, I can only work if I have my whatever mm-hmm. with me. And then it's not, I can't mix unless I, I can't record unless I have this microphone. And those limitations don't necessarily serve you well. It's better to be able to be flexible and to be able to think of ways to do things that aren't limited to just the one way. So that's the thing with gear. And gear can trick you. Like, that's what I was saying about the analog tape. People will be like, well, I went to tape. It must sound good. And you're like, no, no, no. It doesn't necessarily sound good. It doesn't necessarily sound good just by running through the Whitestone audio box. Those things don't just automatically make your mix sound good. They're tools to help you get there, but they're not going to do it without you putting in the the work that it takes to be a good mixing engineer. Yeah. I want to ask you about some things about life outside of audio. Do you have any hobbies or is there anything that you're passionate about that inspires you in life in general and kind of offsets audio? Yeah. I mean, the, the kids take up a lot of stuff and I'm very passionate about those those two kids and my my, fam, <laughs> my family in general. You know, I picked up running again recently because that was been a good COVID activity. I used to do yoga, but yoga studios are not the place to be right now. And bike riding. I also have a thing where it feels tied into all of the same passions and interest I have in nerdy gear stuff and sound. And it's all kind of connected to this general, like how to make things better in the world sort of thing. And, and that applies to just about anything you can think of, like whether it's figuring out a way to hang a shade thing up in your backyard or, or, or to fix a deck or to do any kind of housework or replumb something or whatever you got to do. So I spend most of my time in my life thinking about the world that way. Like, oh, if I only did this or changed this, then that would make this part of my life easier and more fun and would be kind of an interesting thing to explore. So I do that and I've been re- reading more, which has been great. I've really been enjoying that. I guess my point being that it all feels like part of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, making records and thinking about sound is all connected to all other aspects of my life. It's all just feels like me and how I think about the world and how, how I want to move through the world and how, how I want to kind of like just be part of things. It's all connected. Do you feel that I mean, it sounds like it, but do you feel that you have a good work-life balance? Right now, particularly, yeah, because the time restrictions are very fluid. It's not like you can take a break or you can go, I can go home the whole time so I can come down and spend time with the family. And there are times when that's not the case. Like if you got to go do projects. I Before I used to fly around a lot and do projects all over the world. I was actually supposed to be in Paris in March. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I had a whole uh, project I was supposed to do there. And I, that would have been like a month. So I would have been gone for a month. That's more typical as a way that you have to kind of live as an engineer. You do all the work you can do. I don't think I've said no to hardly any project that made sense on some level. <laughs> so yeah, the work-life balance, it feels pretty good. I try to finish before everybody 
is asleep now, which didn't used to be the case. Before, my prime working time was when everybody else would go to sleep, and I'd work from 8 or 9 p.m. till midnight or 1 a.m. So I haven't been doing that, which is actually, I get as much sleep as everybody else now, (laughs) which which is a whole different thing. Do you ever get burned out on audio? Only when I get bummed out about what the future of audio is. Mm -hmm. That's when I get kind of like, when I start thinking about the future of it and where it's going and whether people still care about it, then I get kind of burned out. Like when you put so much effort in and then you kind of go like, maybe the world just doesn't care that much about sound the way I do anymore. This before the pandemic, obviously, but I, I went and looked at some Atmos room stuff, Dolby Atmos. And so much of the talk about Dolby Atmos was about the room. It was like, the room is this, and the room has these speakers, and it's configured in these ways. And, you know, this is how the engineer processes it. And they'd play these mixes. And I'd be like, well, who was the engineer that did these these mixes? They're like, oh, well, whoever was hired to be in the room that day. And I was like, what? Like, no, the, the engineer is more important than the room. <laughs> isn't the engine and i thought wait maybe the engineer isn't more important than the room so when you kind of think that then i go like oh yeah maybe the engineer isn't more important than the room or the gear or whatever and that that can suck the wind out of my sails sometimes when i start thinking about it that way because for me the sound of records was the engineer like if you dug a record you go immediately look at who engineered it you're like oh yeah that that person's really good martin birch passed away producer engineer who worked yeah. Iron Maiden, Rainbow, Michael Shanker, and Black Sabbath, generally with Ronnie James Dio. And I'm a huge fan of of the records he made, like sonically, just how the drums sound on some of those records I just named. And I am just going through song by song, record by record, just personally paying tribute in my own brain to Martin Birch, but also just kind of reevaluating, like, what is it that really, beyond the songs... What is it sonically that draws me in here? What did he do? And so I, I can't agree more about the importance of the engineer in the equation. Yeah, that's like the part of it that's the most different. My perception of it, of what the job is, is different from what it seems like the general thoughts of what the job is are. And I remember years ago when I got my first nomination as an engineer from the Grammys, after that, I lobbied for a second to change the engineering Grammy to the best engineer (laughs) instead of the best engineered album. So I was like, well, you have the best producer. It's about that producer's body of work over the year. Why isn't the engineer that way? And they're like, well, that's just not how engineering works. It's like a lot of different people work on records and stuff. And I was like, oh, really? That's that's just not the way I think about it. But it is true that like the times I've been at the Grammys and seen, you know, and lost, but watch the people that won go up there. And I look and there's some of them that has been 22 people on stage. You're like, wow, 22 people just won the best engineered album Grammy. That's... <laughs> That's a lot of engineers for one album. Like all the albums I make are like me and Kim. <laughs> you know, like, so. I know, I know. That's, so. that's funny because Kim is is the person that I generally turn to for mastering for what I work on. So, Well, you're wise. You're wise to do that. What constitutes success to you? What makes you feel successful? Well, that's a good question. I think there's a bit of a curse with engineering where like, I don't know if I've ever really felt like I got it just right. So like, if I think about success, I would think that you would feel that you really, you did a really good job. You know, I guess I do feel like I do a good job, but I, I always feel like there's more to learn and more to push and like, and then the other side of that, there's stuff that you feel that way that then 10 years later, I'll listen back and I'll be like, wow, I really liked what I was doing back then. But I really remember like struggling with it at the time and not, not knowing if I was any good or not. 
I don't know. So, but yeah, success, I don't know. That's a tough one. I don't know if I, I think about my life in that way, whether it's, it sounds kind of sad to say, but I don't really think of it in those terms, like whether I'm successful or not, or whether I've had, it's just always an ongoing process of trying to be good and trying to move the ball of quality engineering forward and wondering whether it even matters sometimes and whether technology is moving it back or if it's giving more people opportunities to do it, which has got its own thing, but whether those people care about it or not or care about it the way I do. And then you go like, well, why do I care if people care about it the way I do? Like, it's important to me, but if it's not important to other people, then I don't, I'm not sure how I feel about that. To answer your question, I don't really know if I've had a moment of feeling successful. And I don't mean that as like a poor me kind of thing. I just mean, it's not something I ponder. <laughs> yeah. It's an ongoing thing that maybe we can revisit in 30 years. Right. But that's, you know, a lot of the stuff, it's hard to know at the time what things mean. Sometimes you got to look at lifetime of work and then kind of reflect on it and see how you, you felt about it. Well, we're almost out of time. I, I do have a few more questions. And I know this is probably a real tough one. Do you ever see retiring? And are you making any monthly, yearly efforts toward that retirement? Uh, yeah. Well, as I've, especially recently, as I've gotten older and the work, because I've seen the shift of where I felt like the new kid, like working at Bob's and all these things and then getting my career started. And I don't know when it happened, but it went from that to being the younger kids coming up below you that are doing the work. And you're like, well, wait, I, but I'm still here too. Like, and I mean, Bob's still working, so there's no reason to stop unless you don't want to do it anymore. You can't afford to do it. So I definitely have plans to stop or, or maybe like, I've definitely had thoughts where I'm like, well, I guess if I had to, I could probably go do something else. But it's a weird job because you look, you start kind of thinking about it, you're like, well, where else does this skill set apply? And it doesn't seem like it necessarily applies that many other places. Yeah. But yeah, I do think about that. It is a profession that requires you to have clients hire you to do it. You're not, you're freelance. So if the phone stops ringing, nobody hires you anymore, then maybe it's an indication that you're not supposed to be doing it anymore. So if that if that becomes the thing, then yeah, it's like you have to figure something else out. It is weird to see the show. I always think think about when I was younger, they had that big song and stuff too, like, you know, the, the children are our future. <laughs> right. You're like, wow, I was, I remember thinking about that. When did I become like the future to just being like another taxpaying citizen? <laughs> Or all the work, like with Joe and Henry and I were doing all this work. We did a good decade of just all this amazing work. And then it kind of all shifted and we had to all change. And I was like, man, I was just getting started. Like I was just starting to get into my groove. Right. And then you think about it, like, wow, we, no, it was 10 years. Like it didn't seem like 10 years. Every time we were doing it, I was like, all right, this is still fresh and new. And we're just getting going with this thing. So that's like a weird passage of time thing, like that you could work that hard for that many years and still feel like you were just at the very beginning of what you were capable of. Well, now I know the COVID environment interjects something extra challenging into this whole equation, but how do you continue to get work? Do you depend on management? Do you depend on just networking? And I guess that networking, if you're doing it, is a different type of networking now that we're all stuck at home. Yeah, it's almost all word of mouth. That's what's tough about the album credit stuff. When I did that Ray LaMontagne record, I fought for my name on the back of the album as the engineer mixer. 
And I think that helped a lot. Mm. And nowadays, like without actual physical albums, there's been stuff I've heard that I go like, man, this sounds amazing. Let me figure out who did this. And after 20 or 30 minutes of trying to find it and you can't get the answer, you're like, okay, well, I guess I just won't know who was the engineer on this album because it's just too hard to find some of that information out. But I think that's how I've typically gotten most of my work or word of mouth or repeat clients. Like I just did another Michelle and Deggio cello record, which is great. She came back having worked with me in the past. It's tough because like I do have management. They say things like you should go take meetings sometimes and or they talk about social media stuff. And I've tried in the past and I see other guys do it really well and they get stuff up on YouTube. I always watch that stuff. I'm like, oh, YouTube. And then like, I just, I don't like, what do you do to do a YouTube video? Like I just get exhausted (laughs) at the very first step. I'm like, okay, well, first of all, I'd want it to be something really helpful to somebody. And then like, anyway, so you just get lost in the quagmire of that. But I also just feel like it's weird to stand there on social media being like, hey, hey, hire me. I'm great. I'm great. Hire me. Hire me. I just go like, does anybody actually get work that way? And I bet they do, but I just feels funny to do it. And maybe that's my own self. Just there's something about it that I'm not good at it. I'm not Mm -hmm. good at self-promotion. And that's a bad thing, I'm guessing, (laughs) (laughs) because there's people that are really good at it that seem to maybe work more than I do, but, or at least they have bigger budgets, not necessarily more work, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that happens. I don't know what the answer is to that, to trying to get more work and how to promote yourself. I just, I like to focus on the making the work as good as I can be and hoping I still have a bit of a naive thought that if you do really good work and that's where you put your focus and you and you strive every day to make it the best thing you've ever done, that that could feed itself. Things will continue to come to you based off of a good work ethic and a, and a, and a good attitude about it all. And, and hopefully doing good work, making things sound good, that that, that will help you. And sometimes that's not enough. So I don't, I don't know, Hmm. but I've, I've just never really felt great about making rounds and trying to promote and do social media stuff. And then been like, oh yeah, that really helped. I got all these phone calls because I put up a web page or something like that. I've just never seen it. I always go like, oh, people either can figure out who you are and like what you do, or they go find somebody else that's got more presence or something. I don't know. Well, we're out of time. So if people want to find out more about you, yeah. they can go to your website. They can. I was going to say, we can't end on that note. That was just, <laughs> that was depressing. How can that be your last question? <laughs> but yeah, people can find out more about you on your website at ryanfreeland.com. Yeah, that's correct. I'll put a link in the show notes as per usual audience. Well, Ryan, it's, it's great to meet you. When this COVID thing is over, I think Southern California is going to have to just be my first destination. I got to fly down from Northern California and pay visits to you and many, many others that are down there and doing great work. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you're welcome anytime. I'll show you around. Where, where are you at in uh, Northern California? I'm actually 10 miles outside of Oakland. I'm in Lafayette, California. Ah, Bonnie Raitt's talking about doing a new record up in the Bay Area. So I might be up there in, in a month. If, cool. If, well, if let we me know. Be. If you get a break, we can go have a cup of coffee. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, super cool. Thanks for being on the show and great to meet you. Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate uh, the invite and thanks for letting me talk about audio, which is one of the great loves of my life. Well, you're in good company here. So, all right. Will you take care? You too. Thanks so much. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for. 
giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Ryan Freeland here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank everybody that helped out with the show, including Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme song, and Chuck Smith for his magical voice. As usual, connect with me on LinkedIn. Stop by the Working Class Audio website. Make sure you subscribe to the show. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.